What would it take to pull people from the edges when the push to polarize is strong? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, September 7th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we get to know the director of the McGovern Center at Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell, and we'll talk about upcoming events that seek to understand rather than divide. We'll meet a former Air Force aviator on a mission to fight homelessness for other woman vets. Kevin Wooster introduces you to a wind cave naturalist who spent 55 years at his summer seasonal job. Don Frankfurt is retiring. Plus, we rock out with music from the conservatory. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The Forest Service invites you to help restore an important landscape. How? By mimicking the mighty beaver. Tomorrow, local agencies and volunteer groups will build beaver dam analogs in Silver Creek, about an hour outside of Rapid City. And Dunkel is one of the biologists leading the project, and she stepped away from her field work to join us on the phone. Anne, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Help us understand what beaver dams do naturally for the landscape. Yeah, so beaver dams are kind of um, a really core, crucial part of our landscape. They pond up water, which helps to kind of soak into the landscape, which really creates um, a really robust and healthy stream-side habitat. Stream habitat. So not only is um, are beaver dams great for kind of fisheries, but they're great for all other creatures that go to those streamside areas to get all of their um, all of their groceries, you could say, kind of all of their tasty treats and things to make them healthy and happy. So beaver dams kind of support a whole ecosystem. So they're really important. So tell us why humans are involved with building beaver dam analogs. Yeah, so anecdotally, we've kind of been seeing some declines in beaver populations in the Black Hills. We don't have the best data on that right now, but we're working to get that. We're working with lots of partners to do flyovers to kind of get a better idea of what the beaver population is. But without those beavers and those kind of engineers out there helping to improve the habitat, um, streamside habitat is declining. And so we're trying to step in with mimicking beavers with these beaver dam analogs in order to kind of pretend to be beavers and make that habitat come back a little bit by little bit so that we can kind of get a good base place for them so when beavers do come back that they have a good place to start. All right, so tell us what this uh, project looks like. What does the beaver dam analog look like? Yeah, so beaver dam analogs are built mostly with natural materials. We're using untreated wooden posts, and we kind of pound those vertically, kind of from stream bank to stream bank. And so with that kind of reinforcement structure, what we do is we take willows, like a beaver would, and we'll weave those willows through, um, through those posts. And then we get some muck and sod mats, from kind of the adjacent area and pack that in the same way a beaver would do. And slowly it kind of impounds water. It doesn't look as wonderful as a beaver dam because it's made by humans and we're just not as good as they are, but we're trying. <laughs> and so that's kind of, we're trying to just use what they would use and trying to mimic as much of kind of what they would do out there. So we're, it's as low touch as possible. All right. So are you trying to attract beaver to that area or are you trying to deal with the fact that there aren't any there? Like, is it both? Help me understand that more it's clearly. Both. Yeah. It's both. Okay. Yeah. So, so, right. So we're trying to create a habitat that can 
over time rebuild. So we're planting willows along with this. It's, these beaver dam analogs will be raising the water table, so we'll be able to establish more of that streamside vegetation like willows that the beaver likes to use for its structures and eat and survive on. So that habitat will come back so it can support beavers in the future. But also we're working with um, game fish and parks, with South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, to hopefully relocate beavers into some of these project locations okay. so that they'll be able to kind of take over maintenance of these structures. All right. So this is something I'm super interested in covering in the future, and I have made no secret of that because I want to be uh, I want to be in that space watching this work. But tell us, there are opportunities for regular people like me to come help do this work. What do you want the public to know about participation? Yeah, we're working with a lot of great volunteer organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, Prairie Hills Audubon Society. So all of those groups are really great at kind of rallying up volunteers to come collaborate with us on these projects so working with those groups to volunteer and come out and get mucky and kind of get a little muddy and build some of these structures and pretend to be a beaver is a great way to get involved i love it we'll all be busy together we're going to put the uh, information for how you can get there with the directions and everything up on our website sdpb.org news and ann dunkel you've been very nice uh, to step aside from the work to talk to us today we'll let you get back to it but we thank you very much for your time yeah, no, thank you. Appreciate it, too. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, on October 8th, Jennifer Rollins will compete for the crown and title of Miss Veteran America. The competition celebrates women veterans while also lifting up the causes close to the heart of contestants. Jennifer has a special passion for Final Salute, which seeks to address the rising number of homeless women veterans. And she is with us now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Jennifer Rollins, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. Tell Appreciate us, the opportunity. Tell us a little bit. Um, you have been all over the world. I want to hear, uh, for people to help understand a little bit about who you are, before you left the U.S. Air Force, um, you flew with a crew of all women on the B-1. Tell me a little bit about that and that legacy. Y yes, I did. That was a really special moment. So as a little bit of background, I am a veteran. I served active duty for 22 years, uh, Air Force Academy graduate, so I like to say 26 years, but uh, <laughs> mainly as a B-1 aviator. I did have an opportunity to fly with the Navy, and then I was also stationed in Germany and Sierra Leone, West Africa. The sortie that you're referring to was my final flight, and it's called a Finney flight, and it was with all women. So it was my first and only all-female crew in the B-1, and it was just an outstanding experience to be able to have that moment and then, and then pass it on to the, to the much smarter, younger generation. So when you start out 20-plus years earlier, uh, there aren't many women cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and then when you end, a lot has changed. Tell me a little bit about what you saw. Those numbers are still small but you saw a lot of progress? I, I did, and so f at the time that I was at the Air Force Academy, 91 to 95, there were only 12% women, so my graduating class at the Academy was 12% was women, and now I am a, also an admissions liaison officer interviewing and evaluating those candidates for the Air Force Academy, and they're um, almost up to 30% uh, now. In the aviation career, it's still pretty low. Uh, the last statistic that I knew when I retired was still about 5% women. So it was rare to have that, that all-female flight. Yeah. All right. So you have uh, made a home <laughs> all over the world. 
And now you make your home in the Black Hills of South Dakota and you're thinking deeply about homelessness for other women veterans. Make that connection for me. So I've been a community servant uh, my whole life. In fact, it, it struck me the other day, my uh, Girl Scout Gold Award was with homelessness and food insecurity. So I've been really engaged uh, wherever I lived, and I really found a home here the first time I was stationed at Ellsworth Air Force Base from 2003 to 7, moved to Germany, Sierra Leone, came back in uh, 12. And uh, I became an active Rotarian um, in, in 12. And for the past couple of years, I've been working uh, under the Rotary construct in developing projects to bring awareness to human trafficking within our state and learned a whole lot about the vulnerabilities that homelessness creates in uh, those that are criminals related to, to trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, so that really opened up my eyes to, to, to that vulnerability. So that's really my passion is in, in reducing that vulnerability. And homeless women veterans have some unique challenges uh, in homelessness, what leads to homelessness, getting them the right resources, and getting them that safe and suitable housing. And so Final Salute started. Um, I can tell you the story about, about that, uh, why, why it started. But uh, in 2010 is when uh, our, our founder and president, uh, Jazz Booth, uh, initiated Final Salute, Inc., really focusing in on providing safe and suitable housing for those homeless women veterans. Tell me a little bit about this competition, Miss Veteran America. So as I said, 2010, Final Salute, Inc. was initiated. 2012, Jazz Booth initiated uh, this Ms. Veteran America competition. And basically, it was to create an additional microphone to get awareness, assistance, and aspiration to these women and their unique challenges. So all of us in the cohort, I'm now a finalist, I'm a top 20 finalist, and all of us are echoing the message and bringing awareness, raising funds for uh, homeless women veterans. So the competition itself is basically one long interview. I started applying in January, um, and then about they limit the applications to 200. I don't think there were quite 200 this year, but there are many steps. I went to Orlando in January, excuse me, in June to compete in semifinals. Fourth of July weekend, I found out that I was part of the top, top 20. It's not yes. a pageant. Many confuse for being a pageant. There are some like elements. Um, the the the, uh, the competition itself is the the motto is the woman beyond the uniform, really uh, focusing on the grace, poise, beauty, service of these women that that uh, have service, resilience, courage, and and served our, our nation, and really showing them and capitalizing them and epitomizing. You know, we're still mothers and daughters and sisters, and and there is a lot more beyond the uniform. All right, so when they're asking you questions and you're really thinking, you have such a storied leadership career already as an officer, as lieutenant colonel, but then they're asking you questions about, you know, what's, what's, what's next, what's now, how are you serving your community now? And I'm wondering how the process of being asked those questions helped you further refine what you want to do in the next chapter. That's a very good question. So I do, I, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a pretty active community servant already. I have a lot of organizations. Rotary is a big one. Um, I, I'm still a lifetime Girl Scout, for example. Um, AUW, DAR, uh, I'm a ski coach for the Black Hills Youth Ski Team. And, uh, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy giving back. And there's just so much need out there. And, and you know, it takes a lot. Uh, it takes a village to move that proverbial needle on all these social changes that need to happen and, and offering that back. 
um, those that have should uh, give. Um, and, and for me, uh, homeless women veterans, it really digs into, again, that vulnerability that is created. And I don't want to see them go down a negative path. Um, reach that that out that helping hand to to help them and see that help them see that they have a pathway out and they don't lose hope they have aspiration that situation they're in is temporary for example so it just motivates me to continue to do that I, I do feel like I work a lot within the community and and that's why I made Rapid City my forever home I retired as lieutenant colonel in 2017 and I chose uh, Rapid City in the Black Hills as my forever home. Talk about that connectivity then, because you chose a place that is closely connected with Ellsworth Air Force Base, and you're doing this work which connects you deeply with other women veterans. How important is it for veterans to, to reach out and have those connections? I'm especially trying to tie this back into what you said about being proactive instead of reactive. Like, how do we keep some of these um, crises from happening and I'm wondering if you think that connectivity and you know social interaction with other veterans is is an important component to that. It is, and so is awareness, for example. And, and obviously in my study for this and um, advocacy for this, there's a lot of benefits um, that the VA offers, but there are surveys that Final Salute Inc. and Ms. Veteran America have uh, follow and post on both of their websites that have stated 80 plus percent of, of women veterans don't use their health care benefits. And in talking with current active duty members, for example, I just, you know, very unofficially ask them if they know, you know, what the VA is, how it works for them, and they don't know. And I think that awareness starts when they're still active, when everything is fine and they think going on deployment is going to be fine, coming back is going to be fine, and then that's, that's how the hardship happened. Um, and, and creating that network. Uh, we're mobile people. Military people are mobile people, and I think that uh, that is something that a lot of uh, that's how that's the overlap. I'm a firm believer in the community. This community is wonderful in accepting our military members, but that's what saves individuals. I think is is continually reaching out that reaching out and and helping them and showing them um, the overlap within the communities and the networks that they have within the communities. All right, September 9th, there is a fashion show and a little preview of some of the competition. Tell us a little bit about how people can participate in that fundraising event and also what they would uh, see if they came to that event. Absolutely, and I just want to invite your listeners to, if they're interested in uh, following me or learning more about Final Salute, Inc. or the Ms. Veteran America competition, um, they can follow me on my social media sites, uh, Jennifer R. 4 the number four MVA, Ms. Veteran America 2023. Um, and on that, you'll also find some information on the September 9th on Saturday, one to three downtown at the Mount Rushmore Society Event Center, 830 Main Street, not at Mount Rushmore, it's downtown. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, recap this story, more of my, my why I've selected to do this and more of the statistics that are involved. Any given day, there's 55,000 homeless women veterans, for example, and what we're doing about that. And, uh, and yes, it, since it is a competition, there are some elements that are similar to what you would see at a beauty pageant. Um, we have an evening gown. We have a push-up competition. That's, a, that's the military side. We have military history. <coughs> um, I need to study more for that, yes. And group, group photo and a group, group picture, uh, excuse me, a, a group dress that we have. 
And, uh, and so I'm going to show some of those fashions and, of course, the ever-talent, the ever-popular talent. Um, and I will, I will be presenting my talent a little bit of a debut. All right. Lieutenant Colonel Rollins, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Lori. Appreciate it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, if you tuned in to our Dakota Political Junkies conversation, you might have come away with one word that sums up the political climate in America today, hyperpolarized. That is an issue that the Braver Angels organization is seeking to address. It does so by bringing the red and the blue together. And they gather at workshops, debates, and events to foster understanding and promote shared values. Well, some of those events are coming to the campus of Dakota Wesleyan University. And this fall, the McGovern Center events will feature eight lectures, debates, conversations. Five of these events are through Braver Angels or have a Braver Angels focus. Dr. Joel Allen is professor of religion and philosophy at Dakota Wesleyan University. He's also director of the McGovern Center and he joins me now from DWU's campus in the Dan and Diane Delorius family studio to preview the fall series. Dr. Allen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Lori. And the first time the studi studio is used, so it's kind of fun to, to inaugurate this new studio. Well, we are so grateful to have um, your voice from Mitchell so loud and clear, so thanks to everyone who helped make that happen, and thanks to you for giving it a shot, because you never know if it's going to work the first time. <laughs> it does. That's right. That's it right. does So work. we're ready to go. We knew. We knew it was going to work, because we have great people on the team. Tell us a little bit about the uh, McGovern Center in general, and, and then let's bring in your connection and your interest in Braver Angels as an organization. Yeah, of course, uh, most people know George McGovern is one of our graduates, uh, and he graduated uh, right after the Second World War, after a brilliant military career in, uh, in the, what we call today the Air Force. And um, so, it, and then he ran for president, as you all know, and uh, then <coughs> later this, uh, we built a library in his honor with a beautiful museum and then a McGovern uh, Center uh, for Leadership and Public Service. And so I became the director of that in about three years ago. And for the first few years, really didn't know, or I shouldn't say first few years, but several months at least, I was looking, kind of searching for exactly what the focus should be and became aware of uh, this organization called Braver Angels. And that kind of uh, started a whole new area of focus for us. Tell me a little bit about their um, their overall mission because it's really fascinating, but it also sounds really you know hard and difficult to do in this day and age. It really is. It's also a lot of fun. Actually, yeah, it's yeah. amazing how much fun this can be. Uh, I think we've tended to get a whole uh, idea that American culture is in massive collapse, and, and but there's so many positive things happening. Uh, it's a dangerous time, but it's also a very exciting time. And Braver Angels is uh, bringing people together uh, across these difficult uh, political and cultural divides and providing a context for conversation. And it's a, a really a beautiful thing. And uh, there are all different ways of doing it and uh, different groups of people. I went to a convention this summer. They had a convention at Gettysburg College. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Gettysburg theme was very important. It's like, we do not want to go back there, right, you know? Right. And so they had it at Gettysburg College for a reason. And uh, one of my students and I went, and now we are both trained moderators. 
And um, so the, one of the things I encourage people to do is to get together and do this kind of organized debating, but it's, it's more of an you know, organized conversation, really. And, um, and so we've been through the training to do that and uh, have several uh, opportunities for, or uh, plans to do some, uh, some Braver Angels debating, which fits the McGovern theme because mm-hmm. George McGovern was transformed by debate. debate. Uh, he was painfully shy, and it was debate that brought him out of his shell and really would never have been become the president or anyone that we know or care about if it wasn't for debate. And so it fits the McGovern uh, life and theme very well. Some of the, the ground rules or some of the fundamentals in how we have conversation, I think, could resonate as well to the mm-hmm. listeners of this program. So, Joel, I hope we have many more conversations in the future. But one of the things yes. is to find things that we have in common, to seek to understand mm-hmm. versus to convince. Say more about yeah. one of those two things. Yeah, one of the uh, at, at the me- mechanisms that we use in Braver Angels to... Uh, to get people together is it's one-to-one red-blue conversation. And it's just an amazing thing. I've done it several different times now. And in every instance, even though you may disagree with someone on, you know, on certain policies or perspectives, there's always, as a result of the debate, uh, not only increased understanding, but, um, but areas of commonality that you just hadn't thought of. The last time I did this was at the convention, and this fellow walked into the room, and he had a t-shirt on that said Foxhole Atheist, and of course, I teach religion, and I'm a believer. I thought, well, this is funny. Here's a cons-. And he had the red band on, and I had the blue band on. I said, well, it's interesting here that you're, you're uh, a a conservative atheist and I'm a progressive believer, but we ended up having a great conversation on, uh, on gun control and immigration. And it was astounding how much common ground we found, even though we, uh, and, and different things that were, you know, really worthwhile avenues of, of pursuit to improve the, 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 not only the culture, but the actual policy outcomes. So, um, so it's, it's that kind of thing that we were really wanting to change the culture and, and improve people's skill and the virtues and skills related to uh, public discourse and, and public citizenship. You know, I remember reading the book by uh, Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, and they were talking about how there was a point when, you know, they couldn't even go to each other's offices and be seen yeah. doing that because just the act of sitting down with one another would be yeah. seen by the public, the media, as you know, some kind of caving or portrayal or mm-hmm. weakness and what have you. And they yeah. spoke very openly about how the, the impact that had. And so I'm wondering, like, yeah. even walking into a room, some people might be walking in looking for a fight. Other people might walking yeah. in saying, I hope nobody knows that I'm here because this might <laughs> imply that I have an open mind. Yeah. So I guess w- the question in that is, um, does it take courage to come to a conversation in this way in this day and age? Yeah, it definitely does take courage, but it also takes uh, a lot of hope, right? Uh, there's there's so much hope for our nation, even as we enter into this next election period, which can scare us, but also, I think, uh, uh, underline the core values and virtues of democracy. So... Um, yeah, so we're interested in those big issues, but also kind of uh, regional issues. Uh, Brave Angels is very committed to regional issues as well. 
And so one of the debates we're uh, planning on uh, October 23 is on our lake here in Mitchell. Uh, there's a huge controversy and a lot of disagreement over what uh, we should do about our lake because it's, it's dying. And uh, so the one option is dredging, and then the other option is the not dredging, but using more uh, uh, other methods that don't include dredging. And um, so, uh, and it's it's going to be an interesting one. I actually, I'm a little I'm a little nervous about it because I haven't moderated I've I've moderated classroom debates a lot, yeah. but I haven't moderated a public debate like this. So I'm kind of new at it. I've just finished the training, and I think we'll be fine. But uh, but it's it's a little bit of a concern because this is the twenty five million dollar project, and so yeah, um, and so there's a lot involved. But we but we need uh, to be talking about these kinds of issues in contexts that are not simply bo- you know, uh, city hall you know right. uh, c- city uh, directors meetings. I mean, I think you're on the right track because if I were facilitating this list of of events that you have, everything from life worth living, a rural perspective as right. part of the Stark lecture to is Trump yes. suitable for a second term as part of a red-blue debate? Yes. The one that stuck yep. out to me as, well, that is the one I would be nervous about, would be how can we best revive our dying lake? Because it's so local yes. and it's so, um, you know, just critically important that I think that's where your passions are going to rise the highest is something that matters yes. in that way and impacts people's Plus, you know, there's blame to be had and then there's... so. Broadly speaking, bringing people around in a room, what are some of the ground rules for how we're going to talk to each other and how we're going to listen yeah. to one another around something as important as, um, a, you know, a conservation disaster or a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a really expensive city project or however you want to frame. Yeah. I mean, even framing what we're talking about can cause people to get upset. Yeah, well, Brave Angels does have a set of protocols that they follow, and there's really a certain magic in this sauce. Um, it's hard to, I- unless you've experienced it, it's a little bit hard to uh, outline exactly what it is that works so well, but they've been doing these debates all over the nation. And uh, and so uh, one of the primary, th- you, so the debates are not judged in terms right, of when, yeah. winners and losers. It's really just organized conversation. And you start with a series of ground rules, and one of the rules is uh, the purpose of this debate is only to seek the truth together as a community. It's not to win or lose an argument. And so everybody just needs to you know, get that mentality at the very start. And then another thing, there's just some really practical cultural aspects that are are, uh, that may seem trivial, but they actually become very powerful. And that is that uh, when anybody gets up to give us, so you start out and give a pro, whatever the resolution is, you give a pro speech, four minutes long, maybe five tops, uh, depending on, you know, the circumstances. And then they have to field a few questions, and then you give a con speech, and then you go pro speech and a con speech. And usually you plan that all out beforehand so you know exactly who's going to do the pros and who's going to do the cons. And then you kind of open it up to any, to anyone in the room, and they get up and, and they can have four minutes pro or con, and you switch back and forth. And then when all, after each speech, uh, people are allowed to make questions or provide questions, and the questions are always 
uh, addressed to the moderator. And mm -hmm. so the conversation stays in the third person. And so as long as the conversation stays in the third person and also, of course, no ad hominem attacks are right. allowed or, you know, even, you know, overly, we, we, we're fine with emotion and passion. That's fine. Right. Yeah. Of course, it just meant we, we just demand civility in the, in the midst of that. And uh, so, and then another thing we do, which is just a little funny cultural thing, we do what's called tapping. You kind of tap on things. Uh, and it's like, if you hear something you really like, you do a little tapping thing. And okay. so uh, it's, it's yeah. just a funny part of our culture, but it, uh, but it adds a level of levity that, that helps you to have these serious conversations in, a polite, in civil ways. And, so, and I've been surprised. I mean, we did a gun control one. We did a, a CRT uh, debate a while back, and um, and and they were eminently civil. I was so, really yeah. pleased that they were eminent, and we had people who were strong. You know, we had publicized it in the community, and had people there that felt very strongly for the gun control one. We had people walking in. You know, that I know they weren't here, but I know they pack heat. You know, uh, because right. I know the person, right? right? And they, of course, they weren't at Dakota Wesleyan packing heat, but. But I know they typically did and do. And I had and I chatted with them a little bit afterwards. And you know what? I had lunch with them the next day yeah. and we had the greatest conversation. And I walked away thinking, I really like this guy. I right. couldn't believe how much I liked him. And then, and then and we're going to uh, figure it out. After, you know, then when it's time to deal yeah. with something difficult, we can figure it out when we know and like each other. And that's one of the powers yeah. of South Dakota. Well, okay, so I'm going to bring us back to the to the top sure. here and let people know that the first McGovern Center event, if you're liking this conversation, is on Tuesday, September 12th. It's the Stark Lecture mm -hmm. with President Dan Kittle, 11 a.m. Yes. Central, 10 Mountain, at uh, the Sherman Center at Dakota Wesley. Yes. That will be live streamed. We're going to put more information yes. about all the upcoming events on our website, sdpb.org slash news. And Joel will invite you back and we can have uh, more conversations, maybe even centering around a topic with some panelists. I would love that if you'd I would join that. us for that. Yeah. All right. Thank that you. Sounds great. See you next time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Let's take a moment to celebrate a rodeo summer announcement. August, J.C. Huff was officially named the new women's rodeo coach at the University of Wyoming. To put that into perspective, college rodeo to Wyoming is like college football to the University of Alabama. It is a very big deal. Huff started participating in rodeo at a young age, and then she went on to compete in rodeo for South Dakota State University. But as far as having an official coaching job, this is her first. SDPB's Nate Weck caught up with Coach Hupp and asked her to reflect on the opportunity and what Wyoming saw in the rodeo athlete from Huron. I'm so thankful and blessed that I knew that my parents, who just recently passed, um, were excited and supportive and really just encouraging me to take this opportunity. So it's, it means everything to me to know exactly how they felt about it, and I'm really Really thankful for God's timing on that part. And then my family, family, friends, neighbors, everybody in my community that I was raised in and here on is really stepping up and taking new roles so that I'm able to, to, leave, to leave the ranch, essentially. So I'm first and foremost just thankful for, my, thankful for my tribe that's allowing me to take this opportunity. But to me, 
the most special part about this is um, my sister and I, we um, have been hosting goat tying clinics for, geez, about five years now, and we just adore them. We love them. They just set our souls on fire, and then my parents would usually ask for an update. You know, they'd send us a text, or when I get home, they'd ask me how it went, and I'd always just say, you know, well, in a perfect world, this is all I would do, but it's not not going to pay the bills, and so now here we are. It will pay some bills. <laughs> One thing I was really humbled by and really appreciated is they weren't necessarily looking at my track record for what I completed as far as rodeo, but I think they were more so searching for the person um, and the character, and I hope what they were looking for in me and searching for in me is someone with a lot of passion, um, someone who's truly there for the kids and wants to mold them and impact them in areas beyond rodeo. That's University of Wyoming rodeo coach J.C. Hupp from Huron. More in the moment is after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. After 55 summers, Dan Frankfurt, sorry, Don Frankfurt leaves behind quite the legacy as a seasonal park ranger at Wind Cave National Park. Well, I had a delightful conversation with Don yesterday. I'm looking forward to bringing that to you on tomorrow's In the Moment. But Kevin Wooster got to know Don and wrote about his career for our website, stpb.org slash Wooster, even after Getting to know Don, I read Kevin's piece and I thought, hey, I didn't know this guy. There's so much more to him than I realized. So Kevin Wooster is with us from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studios in Rapid City. Um, Kevin, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey. Well, it's great to be back and great to talk about a guy that's, uh, as he said himself, uh, had jobs that allowed him to never really grow up. (laughs) Right. If you had kept your first summer job out of college... Like, what would you be doing now? <laughs> well, I I you, might maybe you be are. working at the, uh, I might be working at the Chamberlain Register, and there you go. And uh, so that wouldn't be the worst thing. Still in journalism. Uh, yeah, you know. So some so people just find this the, the thing that they like and they stick with it. And who would have figured that it would it would be a New York City kid who yeah. found the the Rangers, you know, a seasonal Rangers job in wind cave out here he certainly didn't he wasn't that wasn't the way he was thinking and uh you know he had planned as you'll probably talk about that to be an orthodontist (laughs) and uh, things went the other direction and he comes west to wind cave it's not far enough west for him by the way originally but he decides to stay tell me a little bit about why he's retiring well you know he it's, uh, I'm, I'm almost 72, he's 78, so we kind of uh, commiserate on certain things, including uh, joints that don't work exactly the way they used to. And this is a guy who's climbed, I can't remember what the numbers are, is it 1.6 million stairs or something like that, uh, over the last 55 summers that, you know, you've been in those cave tours that he does, other tours too, and he's up in the visitor center and things. 
But it's the cave tours. He he hurt his knee last summer in June and stopped doing the cave tours because of all the steps Mm -hmm. and uh, went back to it this year. But even though he did it and got through the year, his knees were telling him something that he probably didn't want to hear, but, you know, that it was maybe time to stop doing those tours. And at 78, maybe it was maybe it was time to, to give up that job that has kept him feeling young for so long. Yeah, it's given him a family and so much more. Tell me a little bit about uh, losing and finding people on Wind Cave Tours because I you love, love that, that story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the numbers for what, and that, that's kind of what, you know, Mary and I went down to this last campfire program that he gave last uh, Saturday night in the, in the amphitheater in the campground down there. And very interesting by the numbers things that, that, uh, that Tom Farrell and uh, put together and uh, Lenny Ramaker put together and and uh, those were his supervisors about steps and the people he guided and all this kind of stuff and it was all very interesting and the, including stuck in the elevator twice uh, chased <laughs> by ele- by bison once but <laughs> the one that really caught me was he lost not was it nine and lost nine during you know tour uh, participants people that he was guiding. <laughs> Over the years, he left a total of nine people during the tours, but it was okay because he gained 47, <laughs> I think, if I remember right. <laughs> and before you think, wait a minute, wait so are just people wandering around down in these caves? Are still and then there? You, find them, you know, you have a good lunch, so you last for the day or two until they find you. And uh, there are more than one uh, tour going on at a time down there. There are different parts of the cave, different links, different areas. And so apparently what happens is you might get somebody that kind of lags behind and takes a turn and suddenly they end up with another group that kind of <laughs> come. And so over that process, he lost nine, if, if I remember right, and but gained 47. So he came out 38 people ahead over the years. Oh, I took my parents to the USS Arizona Memorial um, when I lived in Hawaii. They came down and... and there was a tour group that was talking and my mom just got closer and closer to the bus and then she started getting on the bus and my dad and I were like, where are you going? <laughs> She's like, well, this this man told us to go this way and it's, it's easy. It's easy yeah. to yeah. get turned around. You're looking at interesting things and then, yeah. Yeah. and then pretty soon you're on a bus that you don't belong on. <laughs> we, yeah. saved, we saved her at the last moment. So Sure, sure. And imagine you're down in a cave, there's yeah. 30 or 40 sure. people, and as you say, they're strung out, or they're, yeah. you know, looking in different directions. You turn around, and you go, where'd people go? <laughs> and you walk walk that way, and here comes another group, or you see or hear another group. Oh, they're over here. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. All right. So, yeah. you know, he's he's retiring, but, you know, they still, they enjoy his skills. He has a lot to offer as well um, from the park. What's next? Do you think? Do you think he'll be back next summer? And you know what? Let's also talk about the fact that like he didn't have a, a winter job. Like this no, is his job. No. Like this. Yeah. <laughs> this is early. Early on, when he yeah. was still in New York, he he's a big. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of model trains. He's also got yeah. a whole bunch of uh, not yet put together in most cases model airplanes and and all kinds of, of things in boxes, and uh, so he 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 got an undergraduate and master's degree in geology still living out in the New York area. And, and uh, so he was teaching one class of geology at a college in the off season, but he also had a job at this bottle trains uh, shop, this store. 
And so he did that for a number of semesters, years. And, uh, but after he got married, he was looking for jobs, found his wife working at the park in the summer. She was working there too. And uh, eventually she got a job teaching over in Gillette, uh, actually uh, as a librarian, a school librarian and, yeah. and, and a computer person. And so he had that security and he became a house husband. And then they had a son and he became a stay-at-home dad. And with this job every year, year after year, uh, as he said, never had to get a real job, never had a real full-time all-year-long job in his life. And now he's 78, and yeah. uh, uh, which I think is delightful. Perfect thing for the family. She, she teaches yeah, and he does the summer work at the National Park and yep. uh, everybody enjoys the stories that he tells in his leadership over the years. So yeah. um, you're going to hear from Don Frankfurt tomorrow and hear a lot of his great stories on our program, but you can find Kevin Wooster's writing about Don and his interviews with him on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate that. Of course. Thanks, Laura. See you next time.
Carlos with the conservatory is with us now on the phone. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. A little fun with live radio today. You never know what's going to happen in a live performance, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've had plenty of those. So. <laughs> you, tell me a story about when things went wrong once for you and one of your bands. Oh, my God. There's too <laughs> many of them. Uh, yeah, when you work with the same guys, it's it's really cool. But when you when you're working with people that you don't know, a lot of times things go go haywire really fast. You just got to rely on the guys you're with. <laughs> and everybody pulls together, and the music goes on. Tell us a little bit about the conservatory. This group of people. Well, it's a it's a group of guys. We're all um, some might say past our prime, but we're hanging around to show that we can still make some music. Um, We've known each other, God, I think most of us about 30 years or so um, from different bands back in the 90s down around Sioux Falls. A couple guys from uh, one of the versions of Corey and the Fireflies, they're going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame here coming up in a few weeks. Um, I was from Janitor Bob. Um, Our drummer, Terry Bentz, played with ZZ3 for a number of years, and he was a touring musician for a lot of years. Our singer, Corey Thee, sang with me back in 93 or so uh, in a band called Studio Two. Corey jokes that he gets in bands every 20 years. He did it when he was 13 with his brother and then 33, and now you guess the age from there. So So when you get this group of guys together, then you're like, well, let's make something new. What's the process like? What's the creative work like? Well, it's kind of difficult because we're spread out. uh, Steve Hobeck, our bass player, and Terry and Corey all live in Sioux Falls. Darren Lindblom lives in Minneapolis, and I'm up here in Aberdeen. So we can only get together sporadically. We try and do it uh, uh, monthly, every six weeks if we can. But, um, you know, life happens, and sometimes that, that doesn't happen. It took us three years to get our first uh, seven songs recorded. We've got a bunch more ready to go, but we just have got to figure out a way to get the time and, and do it. Um, we just, we love doing it and we love being around each other. We've all played with different people throughout the years. And sometimes you just keep gravitating back towards the same people because that's what makes you happy. And, and those, that's, that's why at this age, why you keep doing it because, you know, there's, it's not a profit minded thing. We're not out, uh, chilling for gigs or anything, you know, we're not busking on the street, but, we just we just love what we do and and we love the camaraderie and and bouncing ideas and it's it's just sure joy when we do it. Yeah. All right. Arts the arts community in Aberdeen is really thriving. Tell me about the festival that's coming up. What are you looking forward to? Well, you know, this is it's funny. I've been in Aberdeen almost 10 years now and this is the first year I'm going to actually uh, be able to enjoy it. <laughs> Um, I'm a shift worker, so I don't get out in the daylight hours very much. Wow. Um, but uh, uh, Dan Kleberg from Down at the Red Rooster uh, sets up this Fallout Festival and does just a phenomenal job. It's the Fallout Arts Creative Community, and uh, it's it's for everybody in Aberdeen. I mean, it's it's not limited to kids to adults. It's for everybody to get together. And for everywhere I've been, the places I've lived and stuff, it's the most inclusive, yeah. uh, hate-free, wonderful situation to be in. It's it's just a joy to be part of it. 
You can find more at falloutcreativecommunity.org. I love hanging out at the Red Rooster up there at Dan and Angie's place. And uh, the conservatory is going to headline this Fallout Art and Music Festival in Aberdeen, Saturday, September 9th, 3 through 10. Thank you so much, Mr. Yost. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate your time. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Give you a lot of information today. So you can go online at sdpb.org slash news for links and connections to all those stories. Our producers work pretty hard on post-production to get that stuff up for you. So check it out this afternoon from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. I was so inside.